Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Welcome to Season 14 of Civil War Talk Radio. When Ulysses Grant and his Union armies crossed the James River in 1864 en route to Petersburg, the good news was that this maneuver marked the end of the brutal overland campaign, in which the Army of the Potomac and the Army of Northern Virginia suffered horrifying losses. The bad news was that Grant's lunge toward Petersburg initiated an extended period of trench warfare. And we all know that there is no more demoralizing and dehumanizing military activity than prolonged trench warfare. Or is there? Professor Stephen E. Sodergren has looked at these events and reached some surprising conclusions in The Army of the Potomac in the Overland and Petersburg Campaigns. We'll find out what those are tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you once again from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University. Not speaking for the university, not speaking for anyone but myself. As always, my guests will do the same. Well, it's the 14th season. Did not expect that to happen when the show began in 2004, but delighted to be back. Hope everybody had a good summer special Thoughts go out to any listeners in the area of Houston, Texas, where they are suffering from uh, very severe weather problems. Hope everybody there is okay. This is the first show of the 2017-2018 season. The year 2017 is, of course, the year of 1,000 likes on Facebook, in which this show's page, Impediments of War, will get 1,000 likes, or... Everything will change. And we started the year with 700 or so. We're up to about 970. looks like we're going to get there. So good news there. 
a quick apology to one Facebook page reader who sent a note uh, about a trip he was going to take this past summer and asking for advice. I tried multiple times to figure how to reply. Uh, email to me directly, I can answer that. But an email to the Facebook page, I could not for the life of me figure out how to answer it, even though I do have editing privileges on that page. I did not have a 12-year-old handy to explain to me how Facebook works. So if you have questions, send them directly to my email account here at ECU. I'll be happy to answer them that way. Well, we're getting ready for a new academic year here at East Carolina. Football season starts Saturday. Everyone's all excited. Old-style football, it is soccer. Women's soccer at ECU is underway. The team is 3-0 and already first time in many years and classes are underway once again i have the good fortune to be teaching the civil war history class as well as a, at both undergrad and graduate levels as well as a introductory u.s history class which is always fun if you're in 3225 or 6035 the undergrad or graduate civil war classes bring a sheet of paper to class tomorrow with a sentence or two about tonight's discussion and some sort of good thing will happen to you, some kind of extra credit. If you're in History 1051, that's uh, U.S. history since 1877. I, I can't give you extra credit for listening to the show, but I will tell you right now, we're going to discuss, among other things tomorrow, the value of a dollar in 1900 and how it compares to today. So you can Google that in advance and be the only one in the class who has a good answer uh, when I ask that question in class tomorrow. Lots of other things happening here in Greenville, North Carolina, home of ECU. Over this past summer, the Greenville Little League All-Stars went to the World's uh, Series in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, and got to the United States Championship game before they lost. That was good. Uh, otherwise, uh, an uneventful summer in the Civil War world. Nothing much happened. No, wait a minute. It was an extraordinary summer in the civil war community and i got a number of emails from you various listeners over the summer asking about it and uh so i thought i would since we're it's on all of our minds what is happening with the way people in the united states and indeed around the world want to remember the civil war era i thought i would share a comment or two what it strikes me we are seeing is the the outcome of 50 years of teaching at the university level, the college level, and even the high school level, of teaching a version of the Civil War that does not attempt to deny the glaringly obvious fact that slavery was a central cause of the war. The lost cause interpretation of the Civil War, of course, uh, begins with the the argument that, that slavery had nothing to do with it, that it was all about states' rights or other things. Historians have stopped teaching this, the lost cause version for, for over half a century, and thus gradually a critical mass of educated people who, who know better has been building up slowly. But those who endorse the lost cause view have remained vocal and through being vocal through continuing to pass on stories through word of mouth, uh, through family tradition, oral tradition, 
through obsolete textbooks in some cases, their view continued to be the one that most often seemed to get public acceptance. Uh, Jim Lowen talks about this in his book, uh, The Confederate, Neo-Confederate Reader, how he would ask groups of, not just of, of random people or even college students, but actual uh, teachers, social studies teachers, what was the cause of the war? And only 20% would raise their hand for slavery, 60% would still say it was states' rights. And this is as late as the 21st century. It seems to me part of that may be that we were all just being nice, that of course we know slavery was central to the war. Abraham Lincoln knew it, uh, Jefferson Davis and, and Alexander Stevens knew it, everyone knew it at the time. But if a person is vociferously advancing a different argument, well, the war is a long time ago, don't need to fuss over it, we'll just let that, let, let that version stay out there in the public ear and, and not contradict it, no need to, to fuss about it. But then in the last several years, things, dramatic things began to happen. The, the Charleston Church Massacre, where the perpetrator expressly linked his white supremacist beliefs with the adoption of the, uh, of the Northern Virginia battle flag, suddenly caused a political shift where, uh, something I don't think I ever expected would happen in my lifetime, where suddenly all points of the political spectrum began to take a new look at the symbolism of the, the Confederate battle flag, uh, when even the, the very conservative uh, governor of South Carolina announced that that flag would no longer fly in the state grounds. It was, it was a, a, a sea change. And when marchers showed up a few weeks ago at Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, with Nazi regalia and slogans and chanting, at the same time, ostensibly uh, supporting the, the preservation of a statue of Robert E. Lee, suddenly again there was a sea change. Now one could actually ask, do we really want to leave these monuments where they have been without considering what they were originally intended to do uh, and, and what, uh, what they might represent today? As an example, I'll say just a few brief words to get to our guest. Uh, here in Greenville, North Carolina, there's a, a monument to, uh, quote, our Confederate dead on the state house grounds. And in 2006, there was a petition to move it. And I thought that was a great public history final exam question that I gave to my students. What do you do with a monument put up in 1914? Uh, a monument that only honors the Confederate dead when Eastern North Carolina actually contributed almost as many men to the Union cause uh, in both black and white regiments. So you've got a monument that's not very good history. It distorts it only honors half the ancestors of the county and ignores the other half. Uh, interesting thing to discuss, but I knew it was just a discussion. It was just academic. I was certain in 2006 nothing would come of the petition, and of course nothing did. Now... Uh, Things have changed. Uh, now the defenders of the statue have have some explaining to do, and what I find really remarkable is that the sophisticated understanding of historical monuments that I try to teach in a public history class to help people understand, help the students recognize that a monument not only tells us about the subject of the monument, but it tells us about the people who put it there. Suddenly that revelation is being talked about all over the internet. Uh, people are 
taking a much more sophisticated look at monuments than they did uh, a year ago. And the movement to, uh, uh, once again in Greenville, North Carolina, to relocate the, the statue from the courthouse steps is, is underway again. And this year, I don't think it will succeed, but there might be something done. There might be a plaque put up to uh, uh, explain why this only honors the sacrifice of some Pitt County soldiers and ignores that of others. Now, I personally would not want to see that monument destroyed. I think it's important to remember that in 1914, white supremacists ruled Pitt County and could put whatever they wanted on the courthouse steps to remind others who was in charge. And we ought to keep that statue somewhere as a reminder of that era, but in a historical place where people can look at it as part of the past, not someplace where it purports to speak for the citizens of the county and express our, quote, gratitude for our, quote, Confederate dead. Um, Certainly, I do not feel gratitude for them. I feel a lot of things about Confederate soldiers. I feel respect, uh, uh, awe at their bravery, sorrow, regret for their suffering, empathy. But I'm certainly not grateful that they went to war against the United States, and I don't share any of their political or social or racial values that they or their descendants in 1914 wanted to make sure were the dominant values of the governing class of Pitt County. And so that moment in history, 1914, has passed, and it's time to move that monument to a historical context. So to those who asked, that's my view of the situation. For those who didn't, I apologize for taking your time. We've got lots of great things coming up, but we're going to quickly go to our guest tonight, Stephen E. Sodergren, author of the Army of Potomac and Overland Pittsburgh Campaigns, subtitled Union Soldiers and Trench Warfare, 1864-1865. Uh, Professor Sondergren, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It, it, it has been a long and dramatic summer. I appreciate your patience with the extended introduction. Uh, really understandable. <laughs> uh, I, I'm very interested in talking about this book. Uh, it's, it's a really a interesting thesis but let me ask you a quick question to you since i don't think we've met on the civil war trail uh, about your day job tell, tell me where you uh, where you teach and, and how you got there oh um i'm associate professor of history at norwich university up in northfield vermont and it is the nation's oldest private military college uh, we were founded in 1819 by Alden Partridge, who uh, originally uh, was one of the first uh, commandants of West Point, and we currently are a mixed campus of both uh, cadets and civilian students, um, about 2,000, 2,200 students on campus, and uh, personally I came by way of... Uh, a long tangled journey, but uh, I did my graduate work out uh, in military history out at the University of Kansas, and uh, this was a wonderful position that offered me the opportunity to uh, teach uh, Civil War to some really enthusiastic students, and uh, haven't I've been here uh, close to a decade now. Well, well, well. Always good to hear about people who get positions at interesting places where they get to do interesting things. Um, mm-hmm. What was the Civil War always an interest of yours? Going back, uh, uh, how far back? Uh, 
definitely teen years. I'm of the generation that um, I was a teenager when Ken Burns' series hit the airwaves, and I remember watching it live with my father, who once he discovered that I was a uh, um, interested in that sort of thing, he certainly he and the rest of the family certainly encouraged it, and that meant trips to battlefields and a you know ever growing library to uh, satisfy my curiosity in civil war affairs and it's it's something I've stayed pretty much focused on for much of my life it, uh, it's endlessly fascinating for me and uh, you know as I've heard from many of your guests in the past I have an ever growing library that just uh, I cannot possibly believe I've amassed so many books in my life on uh, the American Civil War <laughs> well I, I hope that listeners will add uh, your book tonight to their their collection. We're just about to our first break, and again, I apologize for the extended introduction, but we're going to talk about this very interesting thesis uh, in in which you distinguish, uh, as many books don't do, many books sort of elide right from the Overland campaign into Petersburg. Uh, We're going to hear in just a moment about the the remarkable difference between the two. Uh, The book title is The Army of the Potomac and the Overland and Petersburg Campaigns, Union Soldiers and Trench Warfare, 1864-1865. The author is Stephen E. Sodergren. He's our guest tonight. We'll be right back with him. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu. Dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking tonight with Stephen E. Sondergren, author of The Army of the Potomac in the Overland and Petersburg Campaigns. Uh, in our first segment, I didn't get a 
chance to mention the various shows coming up. I'm not going to take time from that tonight. Just let you know, as always, go to Impediments of War, all one word, .org, or the Impediments of War Facebook page and see who's coming up. Next week is Gary Cross, Gettysburg Licensed Battlefield Guide, and you can see the other shows there. So, uh, Stephen, why write about the Army of the Potomac in these campaigns when there is so much material out there? The uh, Gordon Ray's just added the last volume to his multi-volume set on Overland campaign that goes into Petersburg. You've got, you know, Trudeau's book and uh, uh, William Matter's book, and, and and then all the books on Petersburg. Uh, what what new argument do we have to find here? Well, I mean, I'm I'm certainly not trying to take away from any of those books. Those are uh, Gordon Ray and Trudeau. Um, you know, I'll throw Richard Summers' Richmond Redeem in there as an outstanding yes. work on um, Petersburg, or at least you know a, a portion of the Petersburg siege. Um, you know, those are wonderful campaign studies, but they're they're unfulfilling in the way I was looking at the actual soldiers' experience. As you dig into these campaigns, you just marvel at how ugly they were, how really terrible. I, I truly believe that this was the worst, that the Civil War is really a continual escalation of violence until its last year, and this is the worst it had to offer. And while you can really get into the heads of the, the great figures like Grant and Lee during these last campaigns, um, I was looking for the tip of the spear. I was looking for what, how did these guys who... Um, the, the enlisted men, the, the line officers, how did they keep it together during some of the most horrific fighting of the 19th century? Well, how, how was the Overland campaign worse than, than previous battles, if, if you can have a, a relative scale of violence and, and horror? Uh, what, what made it uh, escalate over, say, Gettysburg or Antietam? Um scale uh duration that's that's really what we're talking about here it's you know grant becomes famous in the lore of the american civil war for the keep moving on mentality that um the campaign kicks off in may of 1864 and grant grant's not in command of the army of the potomac but he basically is general george mm-hmm. gordon meade is still in command but you know grant's pitching his tent right next to meade wherever he goes so you know the implication is clear there um and it was clear that Grant was going to keep going until he won. And the problem with that is you have these horrific battles one after another. You have wilderness followed two days later by the beginning of Spotsylvania, which goes on for two weeks, followed by skirmishes along the North Anna River, followed by the slaughter of Cold Harbor. And that continues all the way up to the opening battles of Petersburg. That's six weeks from May 5th to about June 17th, 1864, where the army is either fighting or in motion the entire time. And that is something that the men were completely unprepared for. They were used to campaigns lasting weeks, but those campaigns usually were a couple weeks of marching, followed by one, two, three days of battle, whether it's an Antietam, a Chancellorsville, or a uh, Gettysburg, and then maybe a couple more weeks of marching, but they get a break. They get a pause. They get an escape 
from the constancy of war. And Overland Campaign did not give them that opportunity. Grant keeps moving on, and he keeps pushing his men to attack, to attack, to attack, to attack. And they don't get a break. And after a while, that really imperils their ability to mentally endure. In in Bruce Canton's trilogy about the Army of the Potomac, he memorably talks about how when the Army left the battlefield at, at uh, Wilderness in the opening of the Overland Campaign, and then the, the guides direct the soldiers to march uh, to the south, not back to the north. They're going to continue to fight rather than retreat. He says they threw their caps in the air and cheered. that Now they had a general who was going to keep fighting till they win. Did they actually respond positively at first to this development? You know, that, it, it's interesting you bring that up because I, I talk about that exact moment a lot. Um, <laughs> it's it, it could have happened, but in my <laughs> research, I found whenever men talked about that moment, when they <laughs> talked about cheering, it was usually in memoirs. It was usually 10, 20, 30 years later that they talked about the men cheering because it's 10, 20, 30 years later. When they write their memoirs, they know what's going to happen. So maybe they did hear cheering, but honestly, in my research for the book, I didn't find any soldiers who, in the immediacy of the moment, on that moment, on May 7th or 8th, 1864, who wrote in a letter or a diary, were cheering because we're moving forward. I didn't, I didn't find that. I, I think that's a fascinating discovery. Uh, it's the dog yeah. that didn't bark. You can't prove it by not finding it. But it certainly is an interesting suggestion that uh, memories are, are, are colored, as you say, by what actually happened later. Uh, likewise, you, you mentioned the, uh, the, the myth, you call it, of the, the soldiers pinning their names to their uniforms before the charge at Cold Harbor. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that has been debunked uh, previously, but but I'm, I'm sure you'll still encounter people who want to tell you that story. Well, I, I bring it up, and I bring it up in the book partly because it, it's, it, I think it conveys this sense of almost suicidal devotion to the Union cause. And what, you know, whether or not it's true, it's usually attributed to, Grant's, uh, um, to a member of Grant's staff, Horace Porter. And once again, that's something that pops up in a memoir, not so much in a... You know, actual account from the moment. Um, but but if you think about that, you you, you, you know, it, it's a it's a wonderful tale of men facing certain death with bravery and devotion. But at the same time, it's a recognition that you know what we're about to die. That based on this campaign, if it did actually happen, it was the men had realized that Grant was just going to keep throwing them at these at the enemy until there was nothing left. And I'm going to do my job but it means I'm not going to survive this campaign. And I think it, it's a reflection of, real or not, it reflects a mentality that was emerging in the Army of the Potomac by early June that, you know, we're not going to make it. You know, I'll, I, I don't, I'm not going to be a coward. I'm not going to run away, but I'm not going to survive. The odds are against me. And that is a tremendous, and that resulted in a tremendous blow to soldier morale. Um, soldiers cannot become fatalistic. Um, because after a while, they just stop caring, and they stop following orders. And, you know, why should I follow your orders? I'm going to die anyway, sort of mentality. And that began to emerge just after battle after battle after battle. Uh, 50, almost 55,000 casualties in six weeks. 40% of the Union Army of the Potomac was gone. Uh, killed, it, it, wounded, it, it, and missing. 
it really is, is staggers the imagination the, the the amount of losses and you portray groups you know units uh, in formation looking up and down the ranks and and all their friends are gone there's nobody left uh, that they know now you give an example of of disobedience of a, a regiment marching in and uh, in an attack where the officer is directing them across open ground and the men just unilaterally decide, well, there's actually a covered way to where we're going and we're going to take that way. And they all march off on their own uh, volition away from the officer's direction. Uh, I mean, that is, it's a logical thing to do. It's a human thing to do, but it's mutiny uh, yeah. to not follow the officer's incompetent order. That, that's, I thought that yeah. was a very striking incident. Did you find much of that? Uh, yes, with increasing frequency as the campaign wore on. Um, you don't see much of it in wilderness, but you can see mm-hmm. small unit examples of it in Spotsylvania. At Spotsylvania, you can see larger examples of it. Uh, very famously, Emory Upton basically does not allow his men to participate in the June 3rd charge at Cold Harbor because he's he knows what's going to happen. He, see, he saw what happened two days earlier, and he... You know, he's never really held accountable for it, but a lot of it gets mixed up with, it's not, I, I think a lot of it, some of it is just overt, we're not going to do this, and I don't care what you tell me to do, but some of it is could be described as a lack of enthusiasm. We're not going to get in formation very quickly. We're not going to, we're going to, we're going to stall. We're going to drag our feet because this isn't going to work. And we're going to wait for somebody to figure that out and tell us not to do it. But absolutely, by Petersburg, there are several clear, clearly documented cases of anywhere from companies to regiments to brigades um, effectively disobeying orders. The, the military had a great name for it at the time, misbehavior before the enemy. Was what if you were you, you get that's how you get court martial if you did something like that misbehavior before the enemy, and in a way that explains a lot of the lack some of the lack of success the Union Army faces from June fifteenth to seventeenth when they're trying to take Petersburg is the men are just having none of it they get there and there's Confederate trenches and no we're not we're not going to attack those you can't you can't make us the the uh, the famous story of the the first main heavy artillery going forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the men who have never been in battle they they still have the old uh, enthusiasm they they go forward and all the veteran regiments around them go a few a hundred yards out of the toward the enemy and say we've honor reserved gone far enough lie down stop here uh, as you say they know there's no point going any farther because they're just going to be shot uh, but the the new guys go forward in great numbers and they all get they get shot uh, yeah. I mean, in, so, in so the, the 20th army, century, yeah, in, I'm sorry, in the 20th century, they refer yeah. to it as like the go-to-ground problem, is you can, mm-hmm. you know, particularly in World War II, you could get soldiers to go to a certain point, and then they'd just kind of stop and start digging up foxholes, and it was really hard to get them up and going again and keep the momentum of the assault moving forward, and certainly they faced it over and over again, yeah. So, so the Union Army, the Army of the Potomac is losing its edge by the end of June 1864, as after this horrible month in from the wilderness all the way through down to Richmond and beyond in May and June. And and you cite a number of other factors. Um, they don't get enough sleep during this campaign, and they, they don't get the food they're used to because the supply can't keep up with them. Uh, were those significant factors? Uh, 
For a brief campaign, they wouldn't have been. Men were typically ordered to cook three, anywhere from three to six days of rat rations to carry with them, so, and they can stretch that. And a soldier on an empty stomach, has, you know, by then these men have learned how to live on an empty stomach, but six weeks. Um, after a while, you, you know, what they basically discover is that during the day they're fighting or digging entrenchments, and at night they're marching from position to position. Where do you sleep in that? Um, Grant, in order to speed up the campaign, deliberately um, orders away many of the supply wagons in late April in order to allow for the Army to move forward more unencumbered. Well, that means not necessarily fewer supplies, but a longer avenue for the supplies, a longer duration for the supplies to get to the Army. Um, Toss in the fact that it's uh, May and June in Virginia, and temperatures are going to hit the 80s and 90s. Mix in the you know inevitable rain, particularly uh, the mule shoe attack at Spotsylvania. It just pours and turns the ground to mud, and all of the requisite um, uh, 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 health issues that result from that. The men don't get a, a chance to just stop, rest, eat, and recoup. They just keep getting pushed forward. So, not surprisingly, then when when they start the attacks at Petersburg, they they don't they don't break through the rebel lines, even though they are thinly held at first. Uh, and everyone listening to the show knows uh, about Petersburg as the, the birth of modern trench warfare. I guess the Crimea as well, but certainly on a large scale, uh, the first American experience with trench warfare on a large scale. And you have. The, the Confederate forces digging trenches around the outskirts of Petersburg, the Union forces digging them uh, around the outside the perimeter of the Confederate ones. So now you've got what uh, what will look in some ways like the Western Front of the First World War. And as I said in the introduction, that's shorthand for just the worst military campaign imaginable. So if they're at the, if they're at their their end of their tether, the Union troops of the Army of the Potomac are at the end of their tether after the Overland campaign, the Petersburg campaign, which is trench warfare, should break them completely. But that's not what you found. No, oddly, I found just the opposite. I was, uh, I was, you know, in a way, it was kind of nice because I had kind of written myself into a state of deep, dark despair, having discovered just what the Overland Campaign did to the Army of the Potomac, and I was expecting just more of that deep, dark despair as the Petersburg Campaign wore on, and no, the men pulled out of it. And oddly enough, trench warfare helped them do it, because it gave them all of the uh, all of the things that were really denied them during the Overland Campaign. But just to just to back up for a second and touch upon mm-hmm. what you said, certainly World War One is the the image that people go to, and I just wanted to identify right. some significant differences between the Civil War, World War One, and that yeah. is artillery. Um, you know, high explosive, long range artillery um, dominates the World War One battlefield, but not quite there yet with the Civil War. There's no barbed wire in the Civil War, certainly no gas. But Petersburg is a nine-month sustained investment of the city of Petersburg that you have men living in trenches. And as we see in World War I, the British Army almost cracks in 1916 after the Somme. The French Army does mutiny in 1917. The German Army collapses in 1918. And the Russians struggle throughout. Extended exposure to trench warfare 
erodes combat soldiers and their morale. And once again, that's what I went looking for with Petersburg, and I didn't really find it. I found the opposite. And there was a whole myriad number of reasons why that was the case. Well, that that I think is that is the the what I found the fascinating thesis about this book. Um, just saying, with World War One for a minute, uh, for vacation reading, I, I read Max Hastings' book on 1914 uh, over the summer, and I was struck by how much worse the race to the sea was for in, in his account for the British Army uh, than the the. Uh, the beginning of the trench warfare that followed, the, the, and the race to the sea has a lot in common with the overland campaign. Two armies marching every day, fighting every day, marching every night, uh, no respite. And when you actually get to stop and dig a trench and keep your head below ground, uh, it was not as bad as what had preceded it in, in 1914. And, and you found the same thing in 1864. Yeah, I mean, you make a good point. Between that and the Marne, uh, the British and the French armies were, and the German armies were really spent mm-hmm. by fall and winter of 1914, and they really settle in the French warfare because they can't do much else. And certainly, I think that's that's a long way as to why um, Petersburg results is that you know Grant's army shattered, Lee suffers proportionally the same number of casualties as Grant does, so he can really do nothing more but just dig in and hopefully try to wait out Grant for the presidential election. But in so doing, what the Overland Campaign had done is it had forced Union soldiers to go basically over the top, over and over and over again, attack Confederate entrenchments out in the open in the face of modern rifled muskets. And they had learned, perhaps faster than their generals did, that that's not a good idea. They had seen the casualties. They had seen their friends collapse in bloody heaps at places like Spotsylvania. And they knew the way to win was not to attack across open ground. So when they're told to stop, stay in one place, and dig a hole, they welcome it. Yes, it's exhausting work. Yes, if they stick their head up, they'll, you know, they'll be picked off by a sniper or a mortar round might drop into their trench at any moment. But given the, the yeah, but just given it's better the than the alternative. Exactly. Given the mentality of Civil War combat tactics in the 19th century, there is really no individual initiative. And, you know, certainly that's what my students really like to point out about the Civil War. It's like they're marching shoulder to shoulder in formations like that. Today we have, you know, cover and concealment. We have, you know, uh, soldiers who are supposed to be able to operate independently on a battlefield. And that's not really how it worked. Now, it's a different world. Then I'm, I'm going to interrupt because we're going to take a short yes. break, uh, and we'll come back and talk more what happened in the Petersburg trenches with Stephen Sodergren, author of The Army of the Potomac in the Overland and Petersburg Campaigns. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. 
If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Stephen E. Sodergren, author of The Army of the Potomac and the Overland and Petersburg Campaigns, Union Soldiers and Trench Warfare, 1864 to 1865. We talked in the first two segments about the overland campaign, the brutal fighting from wilderness uh, through Spotsylvania to Cold Harbor and so on. And then the transition into trench warfare outside of Petersburg, where my expectation reading the book and, and Stephen, yours, you say, writing it was that you would just find more of the horror and, and, and declining morale of the Union troops. But it turns out that uh, trench warfare is, is, is no club med, but it's not as dangerous as an open field charge, and the men begin to recover their morale during this time. Uh, the, oh, now, I want to pick up on a point you made it about initiative that really struck me reading the book again, that the soldiers, Civil War soldiers are, are citizens. They don't give up their, their rights in their view. But as you said, when you explain to your students, they're marching shoulder to shoulder. They're they're just they're 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 not citizens. They're not independent thinkers. In the trenches, once again, you have a degree of initiative, and and this seemed to it helped their spirits. Yeah, there's that tension, um, particularly in our system of the American military, that of the citizen soldier, of you you are a citizen of the republic who's entitled to your rights and freedoms, but you're also a soldier. You can also be a soldier, a good soldier, mm-hmm. or great soldiers. Well, military discipline isn't really based on freedom um, and rights. It's based on subordination to authority. And so much of the soldier's life to this point, particularly the veterans, of which, you know, those who survived the Overland campaign, if they're veterans at this point, oh, yeah. um, they they uh, you know they have they realize the value of military discipline, but that had begun to crack. Why should I follow orders from people who are going to get me killed? And so 
this cracking of discipline leads to this reawakening of, well, I can take care of myself. And the Union Army just so happens to give them the opportunity to take care of themselves by constructing earthworks, by constructing trenches, by taking an active, direct control over their survival on the battlefield. The deeper you dig your hole in the ground, the more likely it is you will survive. And they recognize that, and they revel in it. They proudly create these um, these fortifications, you know, that get the wonderful names of Hort, Fort Hell and places like that along the Petersburg lines. Um, and they man them, hoping, praying that the Confederates would be stupid enough to attack them so they can kill them in mass numbers and finally get some vengeance for, for places like Wilderness and Cold Harbor. And this proves to really kind of reawaken, to bond them back together, to help restore their morale in that they are now protected on the battlefield. They now can feel like they're not being thrown together like cogs in a machine and sent on suicidal charges over open ground. They feel like just by sitting there in their trenches, they're winning the war. Well, you make an important point about the, the role of, of hope in survival. As you said in the, in the last segment, a soldier who's a fatalist, who's given up, uh, mm-hmm. can't can't be as effective. And here the soldiers now have, they have hope of survival uh, if they dig deep enough. Plus, they're not in danger every day. Uh, there was some rotation of units, apparently, in and out of the trenches. Yeah. Did, was that an official policy? How did that work? It wasn't really official, and you know, just just to be clear, I'm not, you know, as you pointed out, trench, you know, Peters, I am not trying to convey that Petersburg was Club Med. It it was a terrible, ugly environment. Um, over the course of the siege, the Union Army racks up another fifty thousand casualties, either from day to day attrition of snipers and artillery fire, or direct assaults, particularly on Lee's flanks, trying to get around his lines into Petersburg, but. Instead of frequent high-intensity conflict, it's constant low-intensity conflict, and they can adapt better to that. And that does give them hope. Their odds of survival seem to improve. And yes, part of it was they're not in the lines all the time, partly because the Union Army had the numbers. Um, The Confederates couldn't really do this, but the Union Army after a while, begins to build up more and more manpower at Petersburg, they can rotate units out. And typically, you'd have a division that would, you know, a division of two to three brigades would only have one brigade in the trenches at any given time. And the other two brigades would be encamped to the rear, able to get to the front in a moment's notice, to the trenches in a moment's notice if need be, if need be but still somewhat secure. And this is, this is a, a pattern that's going to develop certainly in the First World War, where you don't have all of the men right at the very front of the lines all the time. They establish a series of sentry posts and machine gun nests to provide cover to delay an attack long enough to build up sufficient force to, with, to uh, repel it. And that's exactly what they're going to do. So you have units rotated through the lines. They're given opportunities to get away, um, particularly in the winter when things quiet down. They're given furloughs, which were basically if you're good or um, if, you're, if you're good or if you're sick, you can go home for two weeks. Um, it's, you, you're, we're not that far from your home. Three days, you know, three days up to Boston by train, three days back down, that still gives you more than a week in blissful home to remind you of what you're fighting for. Once again, something the Confederates couldn't really do, but the Union can do this to really kind of cr- restore morale over the course of the Petersburg siege. 
so the, the, another thing the Confederates couldn't do was was supply their troops as well. And, and you point out the Union troops uh, who go hungry because the wagons aren't there in the Overland campaign. They that gets corrected as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's because they're in a fixed position. Um, no longer do they have to worry about the wagons keeping up or Confederate cavalry stealing into the rear and taking and, and seizing their supply lines. They establish a fixed, secure position at Petersburg. Um, Grant and, uh, and the Army of the Potomac Organization and the entire War Department create, you know, really the largest port on, this, on the East Coast at City Point, Virginia, that supplies the Union soldiers with really everything they need. They establish, they create a rail line that runs parallel to the Union trench lines so that they can just roll reinforcements and supplies basically right up to the trenches. And the soldiers marvel at this. And that's an, and this helps to restore the morale. Yes, they're getting fed better, although not universally. There's still some griping, as soldiers are going to do. You know, this unit got more than we did, or the officers are getting fed better than we are, etc. But there's certainly a recognition. They, they see with their own eyes that, wow, look at all of this stuff. Look at how well we're doing. This is the entire union... The entire union is backing us up here, and we've got what it takes to win. And this isn't this process does not happen overnight. They're there for nine months, and the Union Army is slowly building up its resources there. But little by little, the Union soldiers are recognizing that we have the men, we have the material, we have the organization to win this war. And that gives them that word that we've talked about, hope. It gives them the realization that I can I can make it another day because it looks like this thing's about to end. I can do this. In November of 1864, of course, the United States holds an election. Uh, Union soldiers vote in large numbers for uh, the re-election of Abraham Lincoln over George McClellan. And you talk about that, and you talk about the uh, uh, the pro-Lincoln support in the Army. Uh, Jonathan White, in his book on soldier voting, found that Yes, the soldiers voted largely for Lincoln, but that didn't make them Republicans. Many of them uh, uh, still disagreed with Republican policies or with with the administration, but they they were damn sure not going to vote for anyone but Lincoln who would win the war. Uh, But it didn't mean they changed their politics. Did you see any of that? Uh, generally, yeah. I mean, I, this is this is a, this, a somewhat contentious topic among historians over exactly how much political support there was. Because certainly, the, the soldier vote seems to prove everybody wrong that they think the Army of the Potomac is going to vote for McClellan, and it doesn't. Um, there's certainly diehard McClellan supporters in the unapologetic McClellan supporters in the Union Army. Um, but you're right. There is a middle ground between the Lincoln supporters, the McClellan supporters, and I have some soldiers who say, you know, they know why they're going to vote for Lincoln. They don't like Lincoln. They might not mm-hmm. be anti-slavery, but when they hear, um, but at night when they hear Confederates yelling hurrah for George McClellan, mm. that does not make them want to vote for George McClellan. Um, one soldier says, I'm, I'm going to vote the way that we're shooting. Um, the the equivalency being that the Democrats are, you know, by opposing the war, are giving aid and comfort somehow to the Confederates. And it doesn't matter whether I'm a Republican or not. Lincoln is our commander in chief. And I'm going to, you know, you don't change horses in midstream. I'm going to stick with them. So I think a lot of it is, you know, I think there's a lot of genuine Republican sentiment in the army, but there's also a lot of genuine Democratic sentiment in the army. But a lot of it is just 
Lincoln's seen us this far. We're so close. I think he's going to do it, and I'm going to support him. One thing, and we're running short on time, but one thing I really wanted to ask you about that was fascinating. If Union soldiers can hear the rebels cheering or what they're saying, uh, you make the point they can talk to each other across the trench lines. And there's a great deal of of informal truce-making of the soldiers meeting, uh, talking to one another. And this has all kinds of effects. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, once again, the parallels are often drawn with World War One and the, the famous uh, Christmas truce and things like that. Well, you know, the, the Christmas truce did not really last much beyond December 1914, but, right. you know, all the way up to the end of the Petersburg campaign, you have Union and Confederate soldiers meeting convivially between the lines in a very positive manner. And what this does is the Confederates unintentionally help out the Union soldiers with this because when the Confederates, when the Union soldiers see them, they see these men starving in tattered uniforms, mm-hmm. and they go, wow, <laughs> um, maybe we're winning this war. Maybe this is it. And often, increasingly so, Confederates take the opportunity to desert thousands, thousands of, of Confederates before the campaign's even over just walk over to the Union lines or run over often is the case and surrender, sometimes in company size. And the Union soldiers see this and go, well, okay, they're losing more winning. Obviously, they're giving up. Once again, I just need to hang on a little bit longer. Just need to see this through because if that many are surrendering today, who knows how many are going to surrender tomorrow? And yeah, I've some some very fascinating stories about soldiers meeting between the lines and carrying on conversations and um, you know kind of judging each other with a skeptical eye. But uh, certainly at this point in the war, it's proving advantageous for Union soldiers for that experience. So they're they're getting uh, intelligence from the the rebels, mm-hmm. uh, both those who desert or just meet them for a truce. Uh, that the the rebels may not intend, and as you say, that leads to to increased hope for victory and and hope for personal survival and hope for victory, which implies survival if you can be there at the at the end. Uh, yeah. it, it really restores the army. So when you get to the spring campaigns of 1865, the Confederate force collapses. The, the shell breaks through, and the Union forces are more than ready to go mm-hmm. forward over open fields once again. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it's it's strange how the what they're saying in March and April of 1865 is almost exactly what they were saying in March and April of 1864. The war is almost over. Lee and the Confederates are collapsing. This will, you know, it'll be a quick short campaign, etc. These are guys who who should know better, but they've still built up this mentality that, you know what, based on what I've seen, what I've experienced, it's, you know, we, we can do this. this. This is almost over. And unlike in 1864, in spring of 1865, uh, they're exactly right. It's they're a right. relatively they, they, brief campaign. And, and that will bring it to an end. Uh, as that brings our show to an end, uh, too soon, relatively brief and always too soon. But it is a fascinating book that gives a very new perspective on these two campaigns. It's called The Army of the Potomac and the Overland and Petersburg Campaigns. Listeners, you will want to get a copy of this. Uh, really an interesting look at this uh, moment in the war. Uh, Professor Stephen E. Sodergren is the author. Stephen, thanks so much for being on the show tonight. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.
Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thank you.